good morning, everybody. You enjoying that? Everybody feel rested, right? Unless you have kids, like Gavin said. They get up at the same time. My name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're a member here, I just want to assure you of my love for you. I love you. I love that we get to gather on Sundays, and we get to read the Bible together, and it's an honor to be able to preach to you. So thank you for letting me do that. And if you are a guest, welcome to Living Stones. You might be somebody who is a seeker. You might be somebody who has a lot of questions. You might be somebody who has a lot of doubts about God. You might be somebody who says, I'm not sure what I believe. I'm just kind of still trying to figure that out. And you are very welcome here. We're honored that you would take a portion of your day to be here with us. And what we want you to know about us as Living Stones is we are here for God. That's why we're here, right, church? We're here for God. That's what the word worship means. The word worship comes from uh, two old English words, worth and Skype, and they got put together. And the word worship means to ascribe worth to something. And as Christians, we're here to ascribe worth to the only one worthy. That's God. We're here for him. And in a large part, that's what this text is about today. So if you don't have a Bible open for that reading, make sure you grab one around you or still your neighbors and open up to Romans chapter 6. It's going to be on page 943 on those Bibles we said around the room. And this text is largely about who are you living for? What are you ascribing your worth to? The Apostle Paul who wrote this says it's either to God or to sin. And you might find it interesting that when you become a Christian, you at first thought everything was going to get easier. But once you become a Christian, you, you realize after a few days that sin doesn't just disappear. It's still in us, right? And it can be a big struggle. Even when we meet God, we still have a desire to sin. It reminds me of when I was in high school, we had this football coach, and he was from Minnesota. And though he had lived in Reno for a long time, he still had these Minnesota-isms. And we used to joke around as the team be like, you can take a boy out of Minnesota, but you can't take Minnesota out of the boy. You know, you've heard it in country songs before. You can take a boy out of the country, but you can't take country out of a boy. And Paul is saying here today, you can take somebody out of slavery to sin, but it's hard to take sin out of their heart. What this implies is that where we come from is so deeply ingrained with who we are that it's hard to leave behind. And one of the narratives for understanding the whole Bible is it's a story of God delivering his people out of slavery, out of slavery to sin. But shortly after he does that, what do the people always go back and do? What do we go back and do? We go and wish as if we were still slaves. Tim Keller, a great preacher, says to take somebody out of slavery, that takes an instant. But to take slavery out of a person, that takes a process. And what Paul is really getting at today is that when we keep on sinning, we are putting the chains on that Jesus took off. Jesus broke the chains of sin, quit putting them back on. That's the big idea. Jesus broke the chains of sin, quit putting them back on. We're going to try to go through this text answering three questions. What is this saying? What does this mean? And what does it look like? So first of all, what is this saying? First point, we are slaves to what we obey. Let's look at verse 15. What then, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Okay, this is a natural question. And it's a question that 
the audience was asking in light of what Paul had said in verse 14, if you want to take a glance at it. In verse 14, Paul said, For sin will have no dominion over you because of Jesus, since you are not under law but under grace. So when you become a Christian, sin no longer has dominion. It no longer has rule in your life. Amen, church? It doesn't condemn you anymore. It doesn't rule you with its power anymore. It no longer has final authority in your life. You're not under the law anymore. The law says you have to keep this perfect standard of God or you will surely die. Well, we all are condemned at that point, aren't we? But the grace of God says Jesus took on flesh. He lived a perfect life on our behalf. And then he died so that though we fail through faith in him, we can still live. The law says do this or die. Jesus says though you fail, you can live. That's what grace is. And what that means is there's no more punishment left for you if you're a Christian. If you put your faith in Jesus, there's no more condemnation coming your way. And so the natural question that we ask, is it not, is, well, if there's no more punishment coming my way, don't I just get to keep on sinning? I mean, it sounds pretty fun, right? I just get it. I mean, God just wants me to be happy, right? I mean, he doesn't want me to not be satisfied. I just get to keep on saying, well, how does Paul answer this? He says, by no means. It's an emphatic statement. No way, never, may it never be. In verse 16, he says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. You're a slave to what you obey. If you keep giving yourself to sin, you become a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. Uh, let's define sin. Sin is, in, according to this passage, it's lawlessness. It's breaking God's good laws. Like, the creator has a right to make a law for that creation, doesn't he? Like, when somebody design, designs computer software, they put in codes and they put in rules on how it ought to operate. They get the right to do that because of their creator. And God as the creator has, has given this world and humans a way that we should operate. And whenever we sin, we're operating on our way instead of his way. Sin is living life on our terms instead of God's. And it says here that when you give yourself over to sin, you become a slave to sin. Now we just need to pause here for a moment. That word slave, when we read it as Americans, we tend to think of North American race slavery, don't we? Because it's such a horrific part of our country. Still has effects to this day. But when Paul wrote this, it was long before that. And he was writing to the church in Rome. And when he was writing this, it was an everyday reference because many people in the church were slaves and many people in the church knew slaves. And so he was referencing a different kind of slavery. It was Greco-Roman slavery. Um, and so I just want to say that you, we have to think about the idea of what he's talking about slavery a little different. But here's what I do want to say. The Bible never once condones or uh, advocates slavery. Slavery is always a result of living in a broken and sinful world. And the dehumanizing of anybody made in God's image is always evil. Okay? Now, this is a little bit different. This Greco-Roman slavery is a little bit different than North American race slavery. In Greco-Roman slavery, you could become a slave for three reasons. One, you were a conquered people. And it was a, way, it was a provision made so that you could continue living. 
Two, you were a criminal and the judge would sentence you to a life of slavery so that you could pay off your offense. Or three, you were poor and it was an option so that you could maintain life. There was no bankruptcy, there was no bailouts, so you could willingly become a slave so that you could provide for your family. It was more like an indentured servant. And so many of these slaves willingly presented themselves to their master. Now here's the difference between a slave and an employee. An employee could leave whenever they wanted. An employee could take two jobs, three jobs if you had a lot of energy. But a slave only had one master. You cannot have two masters. And that's why Paul is bringing this up here. Because he's saying, when you present yourself to sin, you are willingly saying, sin, I want you to be my master, but I want Jesus to be my master too. And that's an oxymoron. You cannot have Jesus as your savior and sin as your master. We can't do that. It's an oxymoron. And Paul is making this statement very clear because already in his book, in chapter 3, verse 23, he said that the reason God took on flesh was to redeem us from slavery to sin. And that word redemption, it says that Jesus paid the price of redemption. That word redemption means to purchase something back at great cost. It means to regain something that was lost. And here's the truth of humanity. We were all lost in our sin, weren't we? We had willingly given ourselves over to this cruel master of sin that only brings death. But Jesus came and paid the price of death so that we could belong to him. So it's an oxymoron to say, I belong to Jesus, but I want to keep on sinning. It's an oxymoron. It reminds me of a story in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God's people, Israel, were living in, uh, they were living in Egypt. And they'd been there. Egypt was originally a place of refuge for them. Uh, but over time, they began to multiply like rabbits because they drink the same water that we drink at Living Stones. They love to have children. And so they started having so many kids that uh, Pharaoh started to get scared. And he started saying, if we don't do something here, they're going to overtake us and they're going to defeat our army and they're going to take over Egypt. And so what he decided to do was to enslave Israel and he decided to start killing their babies. And that's what he did. It was horrible, horrible. Horrible, that's a new word. Horrible. Horrifying and horrible at the same time. And it was for them. And so they began to cry out to God, and God heard their cries. He saw their affliction. He knew their pain, and he gave them a great deliverer named Moses. And Moses came, and if you know the story of Exodus, through God's power, Moses did 10 different miracles to basically say to Egypt, let, God saying to them, let my people go so that they can go and be free, so that they can come and worship me, and so that they can go to the land that I want to give them. Well, eventually, so many plagues, so many miracles happened that Pharaoh said, finally, get out of here. And the Egyptian people were so scared at what God was going to do that they gave them all of their gold and, and all of their silver and all their riches. And Israel got to go free. And then after they went free, Pharaoh's like, that was a bad economic decision. And so he decided to send his army back out to get Israel back. And then, so again, Israel cried out to God, and, and God, Moses prayed, and he, uh, they came up to this sea, the Red Sea, and Moses stretched out his staff over the Red Sea, and through God's power, God divided the Red Sea, Israel walked through, and when Pharaoh's army came in to try to get them, God collapsed the Red Sea on them, and now Israel is a free nation. They were free. And they were rich. They were no longer slaves. And God's presence was with them. 
a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. God's presence was with them. And God said, we're just going to take a little trek through the wilderness and I'm going to give you your own land. That's pretty awesome, right? They go from poor to rich, from having nothing to having their own land, from being feeling like God had abandoned them to having God's presence right there with them. And guess what they did after three days? After three days, they said, oh, we wish we were back in Egypt. Man, at least we had better food there. It wasn't so hard. It was hot, but it wasn't so hard. And you're reading it, and you're just like, you guys are idiots. Like, that's what you feel like when you're the reader. But guess what Paul is saying? He's saying, we're those people. He's saying, we're those people when we say, oh yeah, Jesus has saved me, and then we keep running back to sin. We're the same people. We have Egypt just as much in our hearts. And Paul is saying, you're a slave to whatever you obey. And his plea is this, Jesus broke the chains of sin. Quit putting them back on. Now, I know as an American, you might be like, I'm from America. I'm not a slave. Nothing owns me. Paul says, that's not true. You're owned by your passions. Your passions control you. You're a slave to whatever you obey. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. So what does it mean? It means we need to quit putting the chains of slavery back on. Look at verse 17. Paul says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. Did you catch what he did here? I love what Paul doesn't, what he doesn't do. He doesn't just start harping them on their specific sins. He reminds them of their identity in Christ. And that, you see, that's the greatest instruction. It's the most frequent instruction in the entire Bible. It's not do this or don't do this. The greatest instruction in the entire Bible is remember what God has done. And Paul reminds them. He says, you have become. He uses this language, have become. It's something that God has done. Nobody sets themselves free from sin. There's no much... You know, there's no amount of positive thinking that you can do to set yourself free from sin. You need a deliverer. And God has set you free from sin in Christ Jesus. This is why as Christians, we love Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, this offer is made to you too, that Jesus can set you free. And Paul is calling to them and saying, remember, Jesus has set you free. And, he's, and it started with your heart. He said you became obedient from the heart. You used to have a heart of stone that hated God's laws and his ways, but now you have a heart of flesh that loves God's ways. Remember? That's basically what he's saying. He's like, remember what it was like? As Christians, the greatest thing we need to do is remember what God has done for us. And Paul's plea here to them is this. Remember how Jesus has changed you. How do you battle sin? You need to remember how Jesus has changed you. You need to think back. How are you different? I posted on Facebook to our church asking for some stories of how Jesus has changed people. And five, uh, there's a bunch of people that responded. They were all great. Here's five stories of how people's lives were changed by Jesus. One woman said, before I met Jesus, I couldn't conquer finding my worth in my weight and with boys. So I starved myself, I did whatever I was asked, and became self-harming and suicidal. But after I met Jesus, I found a love and acceptance that started a journey towards beauty. It took a while, but I finally found freedom in my body. The self-worth to say no 
and I found an amazing husband and got married in white. And I finally had the ability to see beauty in life even when it's extremely difficult. Jesus changes you. Another man said, before I met Jesus, I was enslaved by alcohol, lies, and adultery. But after I met Jesus, I was washed clean of my sin and enslaved no more. My heart was softened and God became my life. Jesus changes you. One woman said, before I met Jesus, I sought the approval from people. I tried to show them how much I cared about them, but by basically doing anything they asked me to. I justified this by saying I was a loyal person and a friend when the heart of the issue is that I was afraid of rejection and wanted approval. I was really a lonely person. After I met Jesus, I stopped seeking to be approved by others because I'm approved by the one whose opinion of me matters most, Jesus. And he accepts me for me with no extra work involved. I will never be rejected by him. And because of that, I am never alone. He changes us. Another said, before I met Jesus, I was a compulsive liar to the point where I had a hard time understanding what was real in the midst of conflict. And after Jesus, I learned to embrace the freedom of the truth, no matter how difficult it was. He changes us. And then finally, a a, a churchgoer said, before I met Jesus, I thought my worth was shown by my activity in the church. I believe my purpose was to be a successful Christian who told people where they went wrong. But after I met Jesus, I knew that his success was my inheritance. I know that my life is meant to love people where they're at and to care for people in their brokenness. You see, Jesus has the power to change you, and that's what Paul's trying to get us to think about. He's saying, remember how Jesus has changed you. He gave you a new heart. He broke the chains of sin for you. And that's why he says in verse 18 that you've become a slave to righteousness. Now look at what he says in verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. It's like, thanks, Paul. Doesn't he sound like just an arrogant, pretentious punk when he says that? I know you can't understand me, so I'll speak in human terms. It's like, here's what he's doing. Here's what he's doing. He's, he's saying, I know that this slave analogy is an imperfect analogy. Because many of the people that he was writing to, they were like, wait, slavery, it's not good. Like, it's not a good thing. My abusive master is not good. You want me to be a slave to righteousness and to God? That, that can't be good. And Paul's saying, no, no, I know this is an imperfect master, but what he goes on to say is in the same way that sin and the passions of sin controlled you, now you need to give yourself over to God so that God and love for God will control you. Look at what he says, continuing in verse 19. He says, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. He said, there was a time when you were giving yourself full-fledged into sin and lawlessness. And that just led to more lawlessness. But with the same commitment, the same passion, the same hope for satisfaction, you need to give yourself to God. You need to give yourself to righteousness. You You need to let the fetters of righteousness bind your heart. He says, the reason being is because when you give yourself over to lawlessness, it just leads to more lawlessness. And isn't this true about sin? Sin is never satisfied. It always wants more. It's always screaming out to me, ooh, I like what you just fed me. Feed me some more. A great Puritan, John Owen, the quote's going to be on the screen, says this. Sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, 
it would go to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow its head? Isn't this true about sin? That's why it's so addicting. My dad used to say, sin is like a pet lizard. Like you have this lizard and you're like, it's really cool. Uh, But then you need to keep feeding it. And so you feed it and then it grows a little bit. And then eventually you have to take it out on walks and it becomes visible to the public. But the more you feed into it, eventually you're not taking it for walks, it's taking you for walks and it's controlling your life. And the more you feed into it, the more you feed it, it turns into a dragon and eventually eats you. That's what sin does. It destroys you. It's a dragon. (laughs) They're real. It's never satisfied. It always wants more. Righteousness, on the other hand, is a far better master, is it not? Paul says here, because righteousness leads to sanctification. That word sanctification means to be set apart as holy or good. Now, God is 100% sanctified. He's 100% set apart as good and holy. And what it's saying here is as you give yourself to God, you become closer to God and you become more like God. That's what it means to be sanctified, to become more like Jesus, more like Jesus in his goodness, more like Jesus in his grace, more like Jesus in his character, more like Jesus in his compassion, more like Jesus in his justice, more like Jesus in his love. Don't we want to be more like Jesus? So you give yourself to sin and it just takes you further and further deeper away from God, but you give yourself to righteousness, which means right living. You, you just get closer and closer to God and you start to emanate more of God's presence. You start to be more fully human because you are made to be in his image. You want to be fully human? Give yourself to God. Give yourself to God. And so the question that we might ask is, how can I know that I can trust God? When sin's always making these seemingly delicious offers to me. How can I know I can trust? And Paul gives him another reminder in verse 20 and 21. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. He says, remember. Like, yeah, you might be saying, well, when I wasn't a Christian, I was free. I could do whatever I want. And Paul says, yeah, but you were free in regard to righteousness. Like God's laws weren't hanging over you, but like what fruit were you getting? What was the result of that lifestyle? He says, surely it was death, wasn't it? You didn't feel close to God. You were dead to him. It didn't help your relationships. It only led to more brokenness. You had a life that felt empty and alone and you knew that you were under God's curse of condemnation and you live a life of guilt, fear, and shame. And then he says in verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. He says, yeah, but now you, you bind yourself to God and God is your master and it results in a much better ending life, not death. I would say that's much better. It reminds me of like when you turn 16, some of you in here are about to turn 16 or you just did, or some of you parents are like, my kid's about to turn 16. When you turn 16, you get those wheels, you know, you get that car and you're like, finally, I'm free, baby. And you like get in 
put your hand on the steering wheel, you're like, this is the feeling of freedom. And in a sense, you're free, but not totally. Because you still have to operate according to the vehicle's guidelines. Like, you don't get to be like, well, I know I have to put gas in this, but water's a lot cheaper. (laughs) I'm going to put water in here. Just get the hose and put some water in the gas tank. When you do that, it just leads to brokenness and death of the vehicle. And so you're free in a sense, but not free totally. And in the same way as humans, you might say, well, I'm free when I get to do what I want. But not totally, because when you put sin in the tank, it just leads to death and brokenness. The only way to be truly free is to live according to how God created you to live. And that's according to righteousness and his image. Jesus broke the chains of sin. Quit putting them back on. Instead, bind yourself to him. Bind yourself to God. And so what does it look like? Verse 23 says this. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here the apostle is is calling us to make another comparison. Compare yourself to the results of sin and then compare to the results of God. You need to make a pros and cons list. So when you are about to sin, what do you need to do? Leslie Nope from Parks and Recreation on Netflix would say you need to make a pros and cons list. You need to compare sin and you need to compare God. What is the fruit of being obedient to each one of those? The Apostle Paul says, when you make sin your master, it gives you a paycheck of death. Yeah, you get a wage, and what you earn is death. And that's spiritual death, that's physical death, and it's relational death. But God is a much better master than sin, isn't he? He doesn't give you a paycheck, he gives you a gift, and the gift is life. That's what grace is. It's a gift. You don't earn it. It's something just given to you, and he gives you life. But in order to accept the gift from God, we need to maintain distance from slavery to sin. We need to know where we might be enslaved to sin so that we can deny it, so that we can accept what God has for us. And so this is my point of application that I'd like us all to think about here today. Where and how are you living as a slave to sin right now? Where and how are you living as a slave to sin? And how is it in comparison to the goodness that God offers you in the gospel of Jesus Christ? So um, I'm going to put on the screen, it says this, I'm a slave to sin when I blank. How would you fill that in? I'm a slave to sin when I blank. After much uh, reflection on this text, I want to highlight five areas where we might be finding ourselves slaves to sin. And we're going to compare those to, how, to the gospel and see how the gospel is much better. So first of all, we'll start with my main problem. Um, I'm a slave to sin when I make success a God. When I make success a God. Now, success is not a bad thing. But when you make it a God thing, it's an evil thing. Um, how God wired me, is he, like, I'm just so competitive in everything. Like brushing my teeth, I'm competitive, you know. <laughs> Um, I'm always wanting to conquer. I'm always wanting to get to the next level because I'm making success the ultimate thing in my life. And this is a cruel master for me, especially when I'm a pastor of people that God loves because it causes me to use people instead of love them. 
It causes me not to be present with them. It causes me to rush through life. It causes me to miss out on what God is doing in the now. And it causes me to feel constantly guilty for not doing enough or not doing better. The God of success is a cruel master. And the reason I make success a God is because I think that by being successful, I'll find value. But the cross is a much better master. Jesus is a much better master because Jesus on the cross says, Kyle, you don't have to do something to have value because I'm dying for you because I've placed value on you already. You don't have to be successful to earn love because I love you in spite of your failures. Jesus is a much better master. Another area where we all find ourselves slaves to sin is this, is we are slaves to sin when we embrace self-righteousness. You know you are being self-righteous when you are always pointing out the flaws of others, but you ignore your own. And think about that for the moment. Jesus himself said that as humans, we're quick to point out the sliver in other people's eyes, but we miss the plank in our own. We do this with people who don't look like us, people who live in different areas, people who shop at different stores, and people the other political party, and people who have different religious beliefs. We're quick to speak and slow to listen. We never admit that we're wrong. We always have the right opinion, and we don't exercise our constant need for God. Many of us are self-righteous without even knowing it because you live your life functionally as if you don't need him. And it's a cruel master. Because self-righteousness causes us to be mean and judgmental and condemning instead of curious. And it only grows to more bitterness on the inside of our hearts. But the reason we're self-righteous is because we know that something in us is wrong. And so we take it into our own hands to declare ourselves right. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is a much better master because it says you don't have to declare yourself right because of the life and death of Jesus. God declares you right. And his voice matters better than any other voice in the entire world, even your own. We already are declared right. So you know what this means for you, Christian? If you're self-righteous, you don't have to declare yourself right all the time. You can relax. You don't always have to be right. You don't always have to express your opinion. You don't always have to express your distaste for the other. You can relax because God has declared you right. God's declared you right. I mean, isn't it true that we become self-righteous because we think by pointing down others, it makes us feel good? But it really doesn't. The only way to find true satisfaction is receiving what God has offered us. Okay, so God is a much better master. Another area where we tend to be slaves to sin is we give in to lust. Lust is when we sexually or emotionally desire someone to be uh, with us who is not our spouse. And it's a cruel master. Because it causes us to devalue humans, it causes us to treat others like objects, and it contaminates our understanding of what true and lasting beauty truly is. And the more we give into lust, the more it becomes a monster inside of us. This is a big deal, even within the church. I heard a statistic a couple weeks ago that 70% of people regularly look at adult websites, 70% of men, and 40% of women. 
It's a big deal. And the reason we give into it is because lust is such a powerful animal within us that we think it's too strong to conquer. Therefore, we must give into it in order for us to be satisfied. But the gospel is a much better master. The gospel tells us that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And if he resurrected from the dead, he's stronger than our lust. He can defeat it. And you know, lust is horrible because it says, give yourself to me and I'll make you happy. But in the end, you don't feel happy. You feel empty, dirty, perverted, and dead. But the gospel is much different. The gospel doesn't say, give yourself to me. The gospel says, I'll give myself to you and I'll make you pure and clean and holy and I'll give you life. Jesus is a much better master. Another area where we tend to make ourselves slaves to sin is we idolize comfort and leisure and hobbies. Now, comfort, leisure, and hobbies are not sins. Not be like, you only have to sit in church all day long, every day of the week. It's not sin to have comfort, leisure, and hobbies, but when you make comfort, leisure, and hobbies the goal at all costs, when you pursue comfort at the expense of worship, at the expense of generosity, at the expense of relationship with difficult people, at the expense of mission for, God has call, for the people that God has called you to, then it becomes a problem. Um, this last week, or yesterday actually, I was having breakfast with one of my dearest friends in the whole world, Pastor Jason. He's a pastor at the Reno Living Stones. And he was like, you know what, Kyle, I, I just have to tell you something. He's like, I was at a party for my, at his school, some parents organized a, like a little get together. And so he's like, it was on a Sunday afternoon. And he's like, I was already serving all day. I had a really hard day at church on Sunday. I didn't want to be around people. And then I had to go back to church at night. I just needed an afternoon break, but this party was going on. So I decided to go to the party, but it was painfully awkward. You guys know how those kind of parties are sometimes. And he said, I was just standing in the corner waiting for my opportunity to leave. And a guy comes up and he talks to me and he was a pretty cool guy and he just started opening me up and engaging me and, and he said to me, so what do you do? And he's like, okay, here's the question. I'm a pastor. And normally pastors don't like saying that because it changes the rest of the relationship after that. But he's like, I just came out and said it. I'm a pastor. And the guy said, no, snap. He didn't say snap. <laughs> and Jason's like, yeah. And he was like, my wife and I have been trying to go to church for several weeks. We have so many questions about God, but we've wondered why none of our Christian friends will invite us to church. I'll tell you why. It's because we're too idolize, we idolize comfort way too much. We're too afraid of being rejected. We're too afraid of the awkward feeling when somebody says no. And Jason said he was simultaneously elated he was happy because this guy wanted to seek God but he felt also ashamed because here he was a pastor hiding in the corner not talking to people and there's people that God is drawing to himself and he won't even engage them because he doesn't want to be uncomfortable and this is a lot of us in a lot of different arenas of life. It's, the, it's this us and our possessions. It's us and our money. And the thing is, is it's a cruel master because when we give ourselves over to comfort and leisure and hobbies, it promotes selfishness. It makes us greedy. It makes us ungrateful. It causes us to have anger and rage when people interrupt our life. And it causes us to covet. And we're never satisfied. We always want more. But the gospel is much better. 
You see, the reason that we pursue comfort is because we know that this world is chaotic and it's not at peace. So we think if we can get some comfort, we'll be satisfied. But the gospel says, no, no, no. That peace that you're looking for isn't gonna be found in worldly stuff because all worldly stuff is contaminated with sin. In some way or another, our approach to it or whatever, it's, it's never gonna satisfy. You need something beyond this world. You need an otherworldly peace. And in Micah 5.5, 5, God makes a promise to his people and he says, I will send myself and I will be your peace. I will be your peace. Jesus is our peace. And it's great news because when this whole world is falling apart, even when you have all the possessions in the world, you can still have peace in Jesus. You can still have peace in Jesus. And the last one I'd like to highlight today, though there are probably many others, is this. As we become slaves to sin when we constantly chase approval of others. When we're consumed by the thought of what others are thinking about us or our performance. This is chasing their approval. And it's a cruel master. Because it causes us to endlessly worry, doesn't it? We're always thinking after every conversation, I wonder what they think of me. I wonder if I should have done this. I wonder if I should have done that. It causes us to not be ourselves. It allows people to mistreat and abuse us. And it causes us to live a life of lies and deceit because we just want their approval. And the reason we give in to chasing approval as our master is because the greatest longing of the human soul is to know that we belong. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. If you have faith in me, you belong to me. I will never let you go. Jesus himself says, the devil can't snatch anybody out of my hand. You belong to me. So whether you live or whether you die, we belong to the Lord. Hallelujah. So beautiful eulogy, a hip-hop group, says it like this. We're all slaves to something. We're all slaves. One master kills, the other one saves. Either you're a slave to God, and that leads to life, or you're a slave to sin, and that leads to death. The only way to remain unshackled from your sin is to shackle yourself to the love of God. And this is what we're called to do. I love what Paul does here. He says, you can't just deny sin. You have to shackle yourself to God. And that's what faith is. And that's what the call for all of us here today. It's not just to say no to sin. It's to say yes to God. And it's captured very well as we close in this beautiful hymn, Come Thou Fount. It says this. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's our prayer, isn't it, church? Let's pray together. God, you know our heart's tendency to wander. We give our heart to you when we say, seal it for your courts above. Have mercy on us and be gracious to us and help us in this battle for you are a much better master than anything this world could ever offer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.